0: Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's journey through history, we're going to take a look at the Michigan public school system and also have a closer look at the leading Calhoun County educators of the rural schools and the rural villages of Calhoun County, and the whole development of the educational system, not only in Calhoun County, but also in the state of Michigan, and the people that were responsible for bringing this about. And it's a fascinating story, so come along and join me. Now, in today's episode, I'm going to be referring to several articles in A History of Calhoun County, which was published in 1913. This is the edition written and compiled by Washington Gardner. Now, he wrote a lot of the material himself, but he also had a few other contributors, which he cites at the various points throughout the book. So I'll be making note of those authors as we go along. I'm also going to be referring to some other online references, and I'll explain those as I go forward. So in chapter 10 of this book, which he entitles General Educational History, he begins, The real importance of men's lives is measured not as much by what they appear to accomplish in the day and generation in which they live, but by the influences they set in motion that affect for good or evil the generations that come after them. Measured by this standard... Two of the most influential men in the history of Michigan, men whose influence will be a positive force for good as long as the Commonwealth endures, lived in Calhoun County. One was a graduate of Brown University and of an Eastern Theological School and came to Marshall when it had been but two shacks and an unfinished double log house as the accredited representative of the American Home Missionary Society. The other was a native of Connecticut, a graduate of Trinity College of that state, a lawyer for two years' practice at the bar of his native state, who came to Marshall soon after the missionary. Those two men, the Reverend John D. Pierce and Isaac E. Crary, attorney at law, lived for a time beneath the same roof and, amidst their rude surroundings, soon found that they had much in common, and early became fast friends. So Isaac Crary came after John D. Pierce. John D. Pierce was a missionary, and because the village was so small, it was common to share cabins with people that you met that moved into the area. And as he mentions, when John D. Pierce arrived, there was only about three structures in the entire village of Marshall to live in. So he goes on to say that both men were interested in education, which had been greatly neglected in the territory. About this time, their chanced to fall into hands of Mr. Pierce, a translation of the report of the Prussian school system made by a cousin of the French minister, of public instruction. Both Pierce and Crary read the report and mentally compared notes. Many an interesting discussion these two cultivated men had over the importance of education in the new prospective state following reading this document. Mr. Pierce would later on speak particularly of one long conference that he and Crary had on a one Sunday afternoon, seated on a log on the hill north of the courthouse. The tree beneath them which they sat still stands in the yard of the home of the late General Charles T. Gorman. Before their conference had adjourned, tentative outlines of a proposed public school system were agreed upon by these two men. Now, today in Marshall, I believe they have a historic marker on that site or in the vicinity of where they held that conversation. It's opposite the fountain in downtown. Now, whether that is the exact location, I'm not 100% sure, but... If you want to find a historic marker in Marshall that talks about these two, it is uh, right near the fountain. Now, Isaac Crary was a member of the convention that met in 1835 to frame a state constitution. And in the assignment of committee positions, he was made chairman of the Committee on Education. Among other things, provision was made for a state superintendent of public instruction, an office hitherto unknown in the United States. He was to be nominated by the governor and confirmed by both houses of the state legislature, the Constitution being adopted by people. Stephen S.T. Mason was elected the first governor and Isaac Crary, the first member of Congress from the new state of Michigan. On his way from Marshall to Washington to take his seat in Congress, Crary stopped in Detroit, the then seat of the state government, and had a long conference with Governor Mason, on state matters. During the conference, Crary called the attention of the governor to the special qualifications of his friend, John Pierce, for the position of superintendent of public instruction. So favorably impressed was the governor by Crary's representations that he sent for Pierce to come to Detroit, and after a somewhat protracted interview, he decided to nominate him to the state legislature for the office of Superintendent of Public Instruction, which he subsequently did, and the nominee was unanimously confirmed by both houses of the legislature. Now here's where it gets interesting. There was an ordinance of 1787 written by the government of the United States which provided that a section of land should be set apart in every township of each of the five states that were subsequently formed out of that territory, which was the Northwest Territory at that point, and the proceeds of the sale devoted for school purposes. So in other states, the land had been at the disposal of the township authorities, and in many cases had been dissipated, and so fallen far short of what the framers of that celebrated ordinance had intended. So Crary had conceived of a different method of disposing of the funds arising from the sale of these lands. And so while Washington was awaiting the tardy action of Congress in admitting Michigan as a state before he could really take his seat, remember he was sent to Washington as the first elected state representative in 1835, but there was that whole delay over the Toledo Strip that delayed Michigan getting into statehood for two years. And we didn't become a state here in Michigan until January of 1837. So there was a better part of almost a year and a half that things were in flux and in waiting. So Isaac Crary took advantage of his time in Washington to do the following. He entered into a frequent conference with the committee charged with framing the The act of admission and was invited to make suggestions that he would deem would be best incorporated into this document. It was at that time that Crary succeeded in getting all public school lands put under the control of the state, and as a result, Michigan now, after state admission, had over $5 million of proceeds from the sale of school lands as a permanent fund held in trust by the state, on the interest of which was to be forever used in support of public schools in the state. So when Michigan became a state in 1837, it sold those lands and it suddenly had a resource of funding for a public school system. This had been unheard of in previous states before. and It was all due to the industry of Isaac Crary when he was in Washington. So Pierce became the first state school superintendent Other leading educators that followed in that role, Oliver C. Comstock, also from Marshall, served as the state superintendent of public instruction from 1843 to 1845, and he in turn was succeeded by Ira Mayhew of Albion and then Francis W. Shearman, Long, one of Marshall's prominent citizens, was the last person to hold this important office under the Constitution of 1835. And this provided that the officer that held that position had to be appointed by the governor. This was changed when the Constitution of 1850 in the state of Michigan provided there should be elected people for this position. So Ira Mayhew was elected and served from 18. 55 to 1858. It was 42 years before another Calhoun County man was elected to this office. In the fall of 1900 was the next man from Calhoun County to be elected in this position, and that was Professor Los Fall of Albion College, one of the best-known educators in the state, and he was elected as the state superintendent of public instruction and filled the office with great acceptability from January 1st, 1901 Till January 1st, 1905. Professor Fall was a member of the convention that framed the Constitution of 1909, and he served as chairman of the Committee on Education. So a lot of Calhoun County men that were interested in public school education had a major role in the state of Michigan's education system early on. Now, I want to take a sidestep to the Eastern Michigan University's website and talk about some of the history of that college of education. And the reason being is it was established in 1849, and it was originally called the Michigan State Normal School. And it was founded for the purpose of educating and training teachers to fill the increasing number of public schools across the state. And this School is over in Ypsilanti, Michigan, and the school offered courses on to the first-year students and the classic course for high school teachers as well as English course for grammar school teachers when it opened in 1849. And then the Normal School, by 1862, the Normal School's building of physical culture in the first gymnasium of its kind in Michigan was constructed. And recognizing the value of physical education, the school also was the first college in the country to offer teachers training in physical education courses. So this was 1862. And then in 1890, the Normal School offered its first degree which was a Bachelor of Arts in Pedagogy. Pedagogy is a term to describe the method and practice of teaching, especially at an academic subject or theoretical concept. And the reason I mention all of that is because if you look at this pioneer era in the state of Michigan, many of the early teachers, in fact all of the ones that I've found, were originally trained at the Michigan State Normal School. This facility essentially changed the state of Michigan because it trained teachers all across the state and became the standard of educating teachers at that time period. It became renamed the Michigan State Normal College in 1899 and became the first institute of higher education in the nation to organize a department specifically devoted to the training of teachers for children with disabilities. And this was in 1914. And eventually in 1959, it changed its name again, and it was formally established as Eastern Michigan University. And there's a lot more of the history on the website, and I'll put the link to that in the show note descriptions if you want to read some of that. But I just thought I would point out some of the history of where the teachers earned their early degrees and instruction during this pioneer era, And now I want to move into some of the rural schools of Calhoun County in the early days. And there's an article written in A History of Calhoun County by Frank D. Miller. And I'm going to be referring to a couple of different essays that he wrote about the early pioneer schools, in the county. And this first one is on the rural schools of Calhoun County. And he says, the educational history of Calhoun County must necessarily be a history of progress. While Michigan was still a territorial possession, Calhoun County was the home of John D. Pierce, a man of intellect and a prophet who had the faith in the gift of prophecy. To him, he was entrusted the mandatory work and education of the first constitutional convention in 1835. So we've already covered some of the history. Of John D. Pierce and the influence of Isaac Crary. The first schoolhouse in Calhoun County was built in May of 1832 on what is now Mansion Street in the city of Marshall. The schoolhouse was used for special purposes as a church and as a town hall, and also for all territorial elections held there until the adoption of the Constitution when Michigan became a state. The first school teacher was Eliza Ketchum. A schoolhouse was erected in Battle Creek in the fall of 1834 at the cost of $80. Warren Shepard, sometimes called the pioneer schoolmaster, was the teacher during the winter of 1834 to 1835. And in 1836, a schoolhouse was erected in Ferdonia Township, about 80 rods west of where the Houston School District House now stands. Janet Baldwin was the first teacher and the late John Houston was the only pupil. Among the other early organized schools, we note the following. 1833, the first school in Emmett Township, with Cynthia Maynard as teacher, Cook's Prairie in Clarendon in 1833, Timothy Hamlin teacher, private school in Sheridan Township on the Horace Bidwell Farm in 1832 with Mr. Bidwell's daughter, Ursula, teacher, and the first school in Athens on Section 34 in 1833 with Miss Akers as teacher. On the Gogwak Prairie in 1834, Arantha Thomas, teacher, on E. Kimball's farm in Marengo in 1833, Mrs. Skinner's teacher on the Chisholm farm, same township. In 1834, with S. Powers' teacher as president of the Eckford School. And it goes on and says that there was another school in... Homer in 1835. So I want to return to Dr. DeLoe's Fall, because he devotes a very special couple of paragraphs to this gentleman. The educational history of Calhoun County and the state of Michigan would be incomplete without mention of our honored resident, Dr. DeLoe's Fall, who served two terms as superintendent of public instruction. Dr. Fall is truly the friend of the rural districts, and to him, We are indebted for much of the rural progress that has been made in recent years. Dr. Fall recognized that the state institutions were preparing teachers for the city schools at the expense of the rural districts, as many of the best rural teachers left their school, took normal courses, the normal school over in Ypsilanti, but failed to find their way back to the rural schools after receiving their training. He therefore not only was instrumental in having rural school courses placed in the state normal school, where rural teachers could be trained, but also provided for organizing of county normal training courses in the county, where it is possible for young people to take a year's training for their important work at a very small expense. So in other words, he made it possible for these rural teachers to get training without having to leave the county and go and then be enticed to go and teach at some of the bigger city schools after they graduated. So he goes on to say that, Now, kind reader, we have traced somewhat briefly the development of the rural schools from the organization of the first school in 1832 to the present, and at present this book was written in 1913. We have seen the passing of the old log schoolhouses, with the plank seats, thatched roofs, rude equipment, and their stead with well-equipped, more modern buildings. No longer does the old song, Readin', writin' and Arithmetic, taught in a tune of a hickory stick, apply to our schools which is kind of a funny little anecdote. And he goes on to say, For today, it is possible to get a good practical education in the home district, and the hickory is almost unheard of as an accessory in schoolwork. Pupils now attend school the entire school year as taught by the districts and follow a regular course of study instead of attending a few weeks as they did in a pioneer time. Untrained teachers of 14 years ago are no longer permitted to take the place of the real trained teachers of today. The prophecy of the great educator John D. Pierce has really worked out, and while we honor his memory, we should not forget those great Calhoun County educators who have taken such prominent parts in shaping school legislation as Dr. Oliver C. Comstock, Ira Mayhew, Francis W. Sherman, and Deloze Fall, all of whom have held the responsible position of Superintendent of Public Instruction. Nor should we fail to pay homage to the brave pioneers who boldly struck out into the wilderness, fording streams, endured untold hardships, and carved out their fortunes in this best county, in the best state, in the best country on the face of the earth. He goes on to include another short essay on the village schools, which I want to read because it offers some insight into other parts of the county in the villages. So this first chapter really talked about Marshall and Battle Creek and their early schools. But what were some of the village schools like at the time of 1913 when he wrote this? And he says, There are seven village schools in the county employing 35 teachers. It's 1913. Three of these schools have the regular 12 grades in their courses, and the remainder have 10. East Leroy has been set off into a separate district and will build a three-room school building. Two rooms on the ground floor will be used for school purposes after January 1, 1913, and one room on the second floor will be used for lecture room, assemblies, etc. The district has bonded for $3,000 for a new building, which is now in the course of construction. When completed, we will have eight village schools. And then he goes into which of the village schools were that original seven. Suresco School property is valued at two thousand dollars. The building is in a good state of repair and is well equipped. Two hundred sixty-three volumes of well-selected books are found on the shelves of the school library. Last year, the enrollment was. 55, and two teachers drew $810 for nine months' work. There is a good, healthy school sentiment in the district. The Bedford Village School was organized in the home of John P. Ames on the 6th day of November, 1842. School has been maintained in the district every year since that date. There are 83 pupils on the census list, 27 of whom, with four Non-resident pupils were enrolled in last year as a cost of instruction Two teachers at $810. The school building for many years has been in service and naturally shows the where. There have been considerable agitation during the last few years in favor of a new schoolhouse, but the proposition has been defeated each time it has been brought up to a vote. Burlington was laid out as a village in 1842, but five years before a log schoolhouse had been built where the present frame schoolhouse now stands, and Mary Buckingham as the teacher. In 1838, the district was legally organized by the Board of School Inspectors, consisting of E. A. Hayden, Jonah Bradish, and Lorenzo Eskenback. In 1869, the district was graded and a two-room building was built, which building is still doing service for the district, and that was in Burlington. And he said at present time there was 55 students and six non-resident pupils and three teachers were employed at a cost of $1,220 per year. Urbandale had just completed a fine $14,000 school building, which was dedicated on October 4, 1912. A fine banquet was served by the ladies of the district in the main room of the building to about 400 people. Twelve years ago, Urbandale had not been plotted, and one teacher taught 14 pupils in a little white schoolhouse. Since that time, a two-room building was built in the district, which it had outgrown, and a small church was secured by the Board of Education, and a third teacher employed. 132 pupils attended school in the district last year. So Urbandale was doing quite well. Takancha has always had an active interest in education. From the time Chloe Ann Meade, later Mrs. Harvey Kennedy of Clarendon, taught school in the old Plank Schoolhouse, with a dozen pupils in 1837 to the present, with superintendent P.I. Wise and six very efficient assistant teachers. A two-story brick building was built in 1873, which has an annex erected in 1910. The school property is now valued at $30,000. It has a full high school course of four years, and it is considered one of the higher educational institutions in the state. In District Number 2, Athens, where the village now stands, was legally organized in 1837 by the school inspectors of the township at the home of Alfred Holcomb. Alfred Holcomb was given a contract to build a schoolhouse, which was to be eight square with a portico in the front, and to contain two fireplaces in the middle of the house. The house was to be 22 feet in diameter with 8-foot posts to be completed on the 1st of October at a contract of $300. A fine new school building was erected in 1911, and it is conceded to be one of the best, if not the best, school building in the town the size of Athens in the state. The building is equipped with a good working library of 780 well-selected volumes, physical and chemical laboratories, a gymnasium, and a fine athletic field adjoining the school property. In 1839, Miss Sarah Babcock taught the first school in the village of Homer, with an enrollment of 50 pupils in an old building which had been fitted up for that purpose. In 1842, $300 was voted to build a new schoolhouse. This building was completed in 1843 and served the district 20 years before finding that the two schools could not be supported in a place of the size at the annual meeting in 1863, and it was voted to purchase the academy which has been organized as a select school in 1854 by the use of the district for the sum of $2,000. In 1864, a graded school was organized, which has since met the requirements of the thriving village, and in 1890, a fine modern brick building was erected. So those were the seven schools in the villages, Soresco, Bedford, Burlington, Urbendale, Takansha, Athens, Homer, And that's it. So there's a lot of interesting uh, details in the history of the the educational system in Michigan as well as uh, Calhoun County. And a lot of the same type of development happened across the state based on the work that Isaac Crary was able to accomplish as the first state representative to Congress while he was waiting for Michigan to become an official state. So you might want to say that we have the foundation of an early educational system had a lot to do with the Toledo War delaying statehood, and Isaac Crary turned that into a benefit for the state, plus the wisdom of all of these other men from Calhoun County, such as John D. Pierce, Oliver C. Comstock, Ira Mayhew, Francis W. Sherman, and, of course, Delo's Fall from Albion. So that's going to conclude today's journey through history, looking back at the early foundation of the educational system in Michigan. I find it a fascinating early history to look back at because education at one time was so very important to those settling the country, that they wanted to have that foundation of understanding of the basic skills that students needed to learn. And education was very important to the early pioneers and perhaps the direction of modern-day education has strayed a little bit from that early foundation But I'll let you be the judge of that when you look at the uh, educational system in present day. But that's going to conclude today's journey through history. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to leave a rating or review on whatever app that you're listening on. And if you would like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. You can also message me at michaeldelawareauthor and be sure to like and follow that page. I will be putting updates on there As I get closer to the book release, I have a new cover that I am going to be sharing on social media very soon. It is on my website, so if you go to michaeldelaware.com, if you want to see the cover of my book, there's a blog article on it. There's also a calendar on there now of my 2024 book tour as it is developing. I've been updating that calendar. And so, if you have any dates on there that you'd like to come out and meet me, get a copy of the book and a signed copy. The book gets released on March 11th. And I'll be doing several book signings all over Southwest Michigan. I'm working on events over in Jackson, Berrien County. I'm talking to people down in Branch County, reaching out to some folks up in Hastings. So I'm trying to make some travel around southwest Michigan where some of the stories took place. And I will be doing an event in Kalamazoo and several around Calhoun County, uh, including Albion, Marshall, and. Battle Creek. And I'm working also on one at the Colon Library, where one of the stories takes place. So hoping to see a lot of you folks out there, if you live in any of those areas. And if you know of a place in your local community that might be of interest to have a true crime book signing an event I'd be happy to come out and do a lecture and talk about one of the stories in the book that maybe it's in close enough proximity to where those places are and have some good time and fun meet some folks sign some books sell some books And every bit of it helps to support the work that I'm doing in history. And I'd certainly like to take the opportunity to meet a lot of you out there as well. And I have an event coming up at the Battle Creek Regional History Museum on December 16th. It is called Tales of Christmas Past. And it is going to be... A lot of fun. I'll be performing in that with my good friend Dave Eddy, my great friend Bobby Mathis, Donna Rickman, and Brian and Jill McCombs, all of whom have been on my podcast at various times. And we are putting this on for the benefit of the museum, and the tickets are $10 each. There are two performances, one at 2 p.m. and one at 6 p.m. on December 16th which is a Saturday. So we very much would love to have you out there. We sold out both performances last year, and we're hoping to do the same this year. So if you would like to get your tickets, I suggest you get them early. I will put in a link where you can get the tickets online in the show note descriptions. But if you want to find out more information about that, go to the Battle Creek Regional History Museum website at bcrhm.org. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening.